Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everyone. This is Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation. In an exclusive interview, I sat down with CIA Director Bill Burns one year after Russian tanks entered Ukraine, sparking the largest ground war since the end of World War II. We also talked about other geopolitical risks, including the threat from Beijing and Iran's nuclear weapons program. Here's the full conversation. Mr. Director, thank you for making time. Nice to be with you, Margaret. You've got the whole world to watch right now. Um, so I know you're a busy man. I want to start on Ukraine and Russia with this mm -hmm. anniversary. Um, on the cusp of Russia's invasion, you flew to Kyiv mm -hmm. and you told President Zelensky, tell me if this is right, the Russians are coming to kill you. Was that the very first thing you said? Wasn't the very first thing I said to President Zelensky, but President Biden had asked me to go to Kyiv uh, to lay out for President Zelensky the most recent intelligence we had, which suggested that what Vladimir Putin was planning was what he thought would be a lightning strike from the Belarus border to seize Kyiv in a matter of a few days, and also to seize an airport just northwest of Kyiv called Gostomel which he wanted to use as a platform to bring in airborne troops as a way, again, of accelerating uh, that lightning conquest of Kyiv. And I think President Zelensky understood what was at stake and what he was up against. Our Ukrainian intelligence partners also had good intelligence about what was coming as well. But I do think that the role of intelligence in this instance, what we were able to provide to President Zelensky, not just on that trip, but you know, throughout the course of the war, have helped him uh, to defend his country with such courage and tenacity. And I think that made a contribution early, you know, just before the war started. Being able to share that intelligence. Yes. You also have said, um, and tell me if this is correct, that it was only a group of about three or four people around Vladimir Putin who knew 
that he was actually planning this invasion. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's true. I mean, I had watched over the years, especially over recent years, um, as Putin had narrowed his circle of advisors. Uh, and it was a circle in which he prized uh, loyalty over competence. He was a group of people who tended to tell him what he wanted to hear, and, or at least had learned over the years that it wasn't career enhancing to question his judgments as well. And so that was one of the deepest flaws, I think, in Russian decision-making just before the war, as it was such a closed circle of people reinforcing one another's profoundly mistaken assumptions. Does he take counsel from anyone these days? I think he's become increasingly convinced that he knows better than anyone else what's at stake for Russia. I think his sense of destiny um, and his appetite for risk has increased in recent years as well. And I think he had convinced himself by the fall of 2021, a few months before he launched his invasion, that his strategic window was closing for asserting control over Ukraine, which he thought was absolutely essential to Russia's future as a great power and to his uh, future as a great Russian leader, as he saw it. Um, and so he had also convinced himself that early 2022 was a favorable landscape, tactically, for Russia to launch such an invasion. Wow. He, he believed that Ukraine was weak and divided. He thought the West was distracted and he thought he had modernized the Russian military to the point where it was capable of a quick, decisive victory. Of course, it turned out that each of those assumptions was profoundly flawed. You recently went back to Kiev and you met with President Zelensky. Mm -hmm. um, and three months ago, I understand you met with Russia's top spy chief. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of opening that you are finding here? Any kind of opportunity? No, I mean, the, the conversation that I had with Sergei Naryshkin, the head of Russia's external intelligence service, was pretty dispiriting. Uh, you know, my, my goal was not to talk about negotiations. That's something the Ukrainians are gonna need to take up with the Russians when they see fit. It was more than anything else what the president asked me to do, which was to make clear to Naryshkin and through him to President Putin, the serious consequences should Russia ever choose to use a nuclear weapon of any kind as well. And I think Naryshkin understood the seriousness of that issue. Um, and I think President Putin has understood it as well. I think it's also been very valuable that the Chinese leadership, the Prime Minister Modi in India, have also made clear their opposition to any use of nuclear weapons. And you made clear to him that a nuclear weapon of any kind, a tactical nuke on the battlefield, would be treated by the United States with the utmost severity? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we've continued to make that very clear. And I think that direct message is gonna to continue to be important as are the messages that come from other world leaders, whether it's President Xi or anyone else. There's not a lot of contact with Russia right now. There's not a great deal, you're right. But you still have that line of communication with yeah, your Yeah, and I, and I think even in the most deeply adversarial relationships, and that's certainly what our relationship with Russia is today, it's important to have those lines open. And the president believes that. What do you walk away from those conversations with? You said it was dispiriting, mm -hmm. why? Well, because I think, um, the, you know, it's, it was a very defiant attitude on the part of Mr. Narishkin as well. Um, a, a sense of cockiness and hubris. Um, you know, a sense, I think, reflecting Putin's own view, his own belief today that he can make time work for him, that he believes he can grind down the Ukrainians, that he can wear down our European allies, that political fatigue will eventually set in. 
And in my experience, Putin's view of Americans, of us, has been that we have attention deficit disorder and we'll move on to some other issue eventually. Um, and so Putin, in many ways, I think, believes today that he cannot win for a while, but he can't afford to lose. I mean, that's his conviction. So instead of looking for ways to either back down or find a famous off-ramp, you know what Putin has done is double down. Mm -hmm. at each instance, notwithstanding, you know, what is by any objective measure a strategic failure so far for Russia. He doesn't seem to have that assessment, though. I mean, 97% of his ground forces in Ukraine. Right. It's a meat grinder. Does he just look at his population and say, I have enough young men I can continue to send off to die? I mean, He's what is the price? that makes him change He's, his mind. Putin is certainly not a sentimentalist about the loss of Russian life or, you know, the huge losses that he's taken in terms of Russian armaments as well during the course of the war. Um, but there's a lot of hubris that continues to be attached to Putin and his view of the war right now. And I think what's going to be critical as we look ahead in 2023 and provide all the material and intelligence support that we can for our Ukrainian partners is to puncture that hubris on Putin's part and regain momentum on the battlefield because I really do believe much as a, re as a recovering diplomat, I'd like to see opportunities for negotiations. I don't think the Russians are serious today. And I think, you know, it's only progress on the battlefield that's gonna shape any improved prospects for negotiations down the road. That's gonna be the Ukrainians call. I think as the president has made clear, it's our job, not just as an intelligence community, but as a government, to provide all the support we can to the Ukrainians so that they can strengthen their hand on the battlefield and ultimately at the negotiating table. So Russia controls 18% of Ukraine. At what point does Putin say, I can't win? I, you must have gamed that out. I think Putin is uh, right now entirely too confident of his ability, as I said before, to wear down mm -hmm. um, Ukraine, to grind away. And that's what he's giving every evidence that he's determined to do right now. At some point, he's going to have to face up to increasing costs as well. In coffins coming home to some of the poorest parts of Russia, because many of the conscripts yeah, you know, who are being thrown as cannon fodder in the front and the Donbass as well, come from Dagestan and Buryatia, the poorest parts of Russia as well. There's a cumulative economic damage to Russia as well. Huge reputational damage, I think, to Russia. This has not exactly been a great advertisement for Russian arms sales. Right. So this is gonna build over time, but right now, the honest answer, I think, Putin is quite determined. You said, um I want to ask you about what appears to be potentially a new line of ammunition and weapons for Russia. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like the U.S. was caught by surprise that China was actually considering providing lethal support. You said as recently as February 2nd mm -hmm. that Xi Jinping was reluctant to provide military assistance. What changed? Well, I mean, I think this is something we watch very carefully. And I think, you know, the Chinese weigh very carefully this issue. And we've certainly made very clear the seriousness of the consequences for our relationship. And I think for China's relationship with our European allies as well. Sanctions. This is an issue that we watch very, very carefully. You know, and as Secretary Blinken has said publicly, you know, we have begun to see, uh, we have begun to collect intelligence suggesting that China is considering the provision of lethal equipment. That's not to suggest that they've made a definitive 
conclusion about this, that they're actually begun to provide lethal equipment, but it's obviously something that we take very seriously and watch very carefully. Secretary Blinken said that the U.S. had picked up information over the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. But picking up information over the last couple of months to thinking they're actively considering it. Mm -hmm. I mean, how confident are you in the intelligence that this is something Xi Jinping himself may change his mind about? Well, we're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet, and we don't see evidence of actual shipments of lethal equipment. Uh, and that's why I think Secretary Blinken and the president have thought it important to make very clear what the consequences of that would be as To well. deter it. Yeah, to deter it, because it would be a very risky and unwise bet. So why would Beijing risk a tailspin in its relationship with the United States and with Europe by crossing this line? It's a good question, and that's why I hope very much that they don't. Because it doesn't necessarily seem in his best economic interest, certainly, if sanctions are the consequence. Do you think that Beijing benefits from having the West distracted and involved in a prolonged conflict in Europe? That, mean, that's the aim. It's conceivable, but I, I think there's no foreign leader who's watched more carefully Vladimir Putin's experience in Ukraine, the evolution of the war, than Xi Jinping has. And I think in many ways he's been unsettled and sobered by what he's seen. I think he was surprised by the very poor military performance of the Russians. I think surprised also by the degree of Western solidarity in support of Ukraine. In other words, the willingness of not just the United States, but our European allies as well to absorb a certain amount of economic cost mm -hmm. in the interest of inflicting greater economic damage on Russia over time. So all of that, I think, has sobered Xi Jinping to some extent. Do you think the policy decision of public, publicly embarrassing the Chinese by saying, we know what you're thinking, um, why do you think that that will make a difference in Xi Jinping's calculation? I don't think it's a question of embarrassing anybody. It's just a question of being very clear and direct about the seriousness of our concerns publicly. as well. Publicly as well. And privately, because that's a message that's been delivered you know, on a number of occasions before this. What are the consequences um, for the conflict in Ukraine if this does happen? What does more ammunition and more weapons mean? Does this, is it a game changer? Well, I mean, obviously more ammunitions to the aggressor in this conflict, to Vladimir Putin's Russia, um, wherever it comes from. And we also have evidence that the Iranians are providing, you know, lethal equipment and munitions, that the North Koreans are doing the same thing as well. So wherever that lethal assistance comes from, it prolongs a vicious war of aggression. German press is reporting China's considering kamikaze drones replacement parts for jets, other weaponry. Secretary Blinken just said ammunition and weapons. I mean, do you view those things differently in terms of, I mean, obviously they're used differently in the battlefield, but where is that line that they are crossing? Well, I mean, I can't comment on the specifics of what was reported in the German media as well. All I can say is, you know, we remain seriously concerned should China provide lethal equipment to Russia. As I said, we don't uh, have evidence of a final decision to do that today. Mm -hmm. We don't have evidence that there's actually been a transfer. And so all we're trying to emphasize is the importance of not doing that. 
the U.S. does have evidence that Chinese companies have been providing non-lethal support mm-hmm. um, to Russian mercenaries, but it's you know satellite imagery mm-hmm. that helps target weapons. Isn't that an indication of where their thinking is on this conflict, that they're not actually peace brokers, but, but party to it? Well, I think it's an indication that, you know, there is a strong partnership between China and Russia, as, as President Xi and, and Putin proclaimed just before the war started at the beginning of February. Um, but I think the Chinese are also trying to weigh the consequences of, you know, what the concerns we've expressed are, you know, about providing lethal equipment as well. And, and weighing carefully, you know, where, where's the point at which, you know, they would run into some pretty serious consequences. And that's what we've tried to make clear. So this was it, testing the waters, in other words, for U.S. reaction to satellite imagery to see if they can then go on to weapons. Right. I mean, there's a big distinction in our mm-hmm. view, and this is what U.S. policymakers have made clear between, you know, non-lethal equipment and lethal equipment as well. So how good is our visibility into Xi Jinping's thinking and his decision-making process? Oh, it's always the hardest question for any intelligence service as well. You know, in in an authoritarian system where power is consolidated so much um, in the hands of one man, but it's something we work very hard at and try to provide the president with the best insights that we can. But you had such exquisite intelligence when it came to Russia and Mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin and his inner circle. Mm-hmm. Do we have that for Xi Jinping? Oh, we work very hard to develop that. Working on it? Um, I think we work very hard to develop the very best intelligence we can. Uh, but I wonder if, when you're talking about his thinking and his decision-making, if he suffers from the same kind of yes-man culture mm. that you said Vladimir Putin does. Because Xi Jinping got rid of a lot of people. It's a, Margaret, it's a concern in any authoritarian system. And I think what we've seen in Beijing is, is President Xi consolidating power at a very rapid pace over the course of the more than a decade that he's been in power as well. And as we've seen in, you know, in where Putin's hubris has now gotten Russia and the horrors that he's, you know, um, you know brought to the people of Ukraine, um, in that kind of a system, a very closed decision-making system, where nobody challenges, you know, the authority or the insights of an authoritarian leader, um, you can uh, make some huge blunders as well. You've said Xi Jinping told his military to be prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. Um, the intel community seems a little bit more ambiguous in its conclusions here. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's an outright invasion, or do you think China's more likely to slowly strangle democracy in Taiwan? Well, first, I think we need to take very seriously Xi's ambitions with regard to ultimately controlling Taiwan. That doesn't, however, in our view, uh, mean that a military conflict is inevitable. We do know, as has been made public, that President Xi has instructed the PLA, the Chinese military leadership, to be ready by 2027 to invade Taiwan. But that doesn't mean that he's decided uh, to invade in 2027 or any other right. year as well. I think our judgment, at least, is that President Xi and his military leadership have doubts today about whether they could accomplish that invasion. I think as they've looked at Putin's experience in Ukraine, that's probably reinforced some of those doubts as well. So all I would say is that I think 
the the risks of you know a, a potential use of force probably mm-hmm. grow the further into this decade you get and and beyond it into the following decade as well so that's something obviously that we watch very very carefully I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you when the intelligence community will have some insight into what Beijing was collecting with that spy balloon over the U.S. Well, I think we've already, I mean, the U.S. government, many of our partners have been uh, bringing up from, you know, the seabed just off the coast of South Carolina as well, you know, a lot of materials from the platform that that balloon was carrying. It was clearly an intelligence platform as well. And I think we'll be able to develop a pretty clear picture of exactly what its capabilities were. But it'll be a while, won't it? It takes some time, but I think uh, my understanding is that we're managing to pull up quite a bit of evidence and material from that platform. Do you think Xi Jinping knew that balloon was sent here? I don't know. You have an idea. I I mean, this is something obviously we watch very carefully as well. I think the Chinese leadership obviously understood that they had launched this capability, um, that it was an intelligence platform. Whether, when, and what the Chinese leadership knew about the trajectory of this balloon, I I honestly can't say. Um, I want to come back to something you just said about Iran. You've said in the past there's the beginnings of a full-fledged defense Mm -hmm. partnership between Russia and Iran. Exactly how far does the alliance go? Well, it's moving um, at a pretty fast clip in a very dangerous direction right now in the sense that we know that the Iranians have already provided hundreds of armed drones to the Russians, which they're using to inflict pain on Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. We know that they've provided, um, you know, ammunition for artillery and for tanks as well. And what we also see are signs that, you know, Russia is proposing to help the Iranians on their missile program and also at least considering the possibility of providing fighter aircraft to Iran as well. That creates obvious risk, not only for the people of Ukraine, and we've seen the evidence of that already, but also risk to our friends and partners across the Middle East as well. So it's, you know, quite disturbing set of developments. Have Iran's leaders made the decision to pursue a nuclear weapon? Uh, To the best of our knowledge, we don't believe that the supreme leader in Iran has yet made a decision to resume the weaponization of program that we judge that they suspended or stopped at the end of 2003. But the other two legs of the stool, uh, meaning enrichment programs, they've obviously advanced very far. 84% purity, reportedly. They've advanced very far to the point where it would only be a matter of weeks before they could enrich to 90% if they chose to, to cross that line. And also in terms of their missile systems, their ability to deliver a nuclear weapon once they developed it has also been advancing as well. So the answer to your question is no, we don't see evidence that they made a decision to resume that weaponization program. But the other dimensions of this challenge, uh, I think, are growing at a worrisome pace too. Israel has said um, they believe Iran has enough fuel for four bombs. And the enriched uranium that was found recently was at 84% purity. That's very close Mm -hmm. to 90% what Mm -hmm. you need for a nuclear weapon. So how far are they from testing? Or are you saying because they haven't chosen to pursue a weapon that Right. We're not near that point. Yeah, and they're still a ways off, at least in our judgment, in terms of their ability to actually develop a weapon. Um, But their progress on enrichment is quite troubling, as I said before. 
Um, I have a lot of questions to still ask you, but I'm told we're running out of time. I want to ask you, what keeps you up at night? Oh, lots of things. It's in the nature of this job, a job I've been proud to hold for the last couple of years as well. I mean, I think in the short term, there's obviously a lot of concern about Putin's war in Ukraine and doing everything that we can um, to support the Ukrainians. I'm very proud of the role that intelligence has played. I think we, not just at CIA, but across the U.S. intelligence community, provided strong early warning of the invasion that was coming. I think we shared intelligence which helped the Ukrainians to defend themselves. I think the credibility of our intelligence has helped the president to build such a strong coalition. And I also think that the president's decision to selectively and carefully declassify some of our secrets, some of our intelligence, has had an important impact in the sense that it's denied Putin the ability to shape false narratives, mm -hmm. which I had seen him do too many times over the course of my experience with him in the last two decades. And it's put him on the back foot, which is for Vladimir Putin a kind of uncomfortable and unaccustomed place to be. So I think for all those reasons, you know, I focus very intently on the role that intelligence plays in this conflict and doing everything we can to support the Ukrainians and help the president shore up uh, this, you know, remarkable coalition of countries supporting Ukraine. You were the last American to speak with Vladimir Putin before this war. I think the president talked to him on the telephone after that oh, trip did. I made in, you know, mm -hmm. in, in early November of 2021. But, you know, with Putin in, in the conversation that I had in, in November, so several months before the war, you know, just left me with a very troubling impression that he was someone who had just about made up his mind to go to war at that point. And I had heard from him before a lot of what he had to say about Ukraine, his conviction that Ukraine is not a real country. Well, real countries fight back, and that's just what the Ukrainians have done, you know, so courageously over the course of the last year. Yeah, he'd been telling you it's not a real country back in 2008 before yes. that. Yeah, no, it's a consistent theme with him. Um, uh, but, you know, over the course, especially of the 15 years since, you know, I was ambassador in Moscow, um, you've seen, you know, his views harden with regard to Ukraine. I think as, you know, he can't conceive of Russia as a great power without controlling Ukraine's choices. And I think as he's looked at Ukraine's evolution over the last decade, what he's seen is Ukraine's stubborn independence, its democratic progress, um, its movement toward the West in mm -hmm. political and economic and security terms, um, largely accelerated by Putin himself uh, through his aggression in Crimea in 2014. He's seen that as a direct threat to the ambition that cuts to the core of his view as a Russian leader. And I think that's the backdrop to the horrific aggression that he's launched. Thanks for listening to this Face the Nation podcast bonus episode. As a reminder, you can watch Face the Nation every Sunday at 10.30 Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Central, or on Paramount+. Plus. If you want to listen, follow, and listen to the Face the Nation showcast every Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. 
It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.